Hello, Duncan Green here with your weekly update of From Poverty to Power posts. I'm um, having to do two in a two weeks in a row this week because my internet collapsed and I was unable to upload last week's, but I hope you don't mind the marathon. <clears throat> okay, so this is for this week, the week beginning 28th of September. And we kicked off with Muyatwa Sitali, who is the head of country engagement for something called Sanitation and Water for All, which is one of these multi-stakeholder initiatives hosted by the UN around the Sustainable Development Goals, looking specifically at sanitation and water. Um, and he's making the case on why investment, investments in hygiene, sanitation and water are key to fighting COVID-19. And he quotes some interesting research from uh, uh, on Sub-Saharan Africa, which found a strong correlation between a higher case fatality rate in COVID and poorer access to safe drinking water, as well as safe sanitation. The correlation was stronger for poor sanitation. Now that does it is correlation rather than causation, and I think you could probably argue that there's a common cause for both high COVID death, uh, fatality rates and poor access to water, but that's a further discussion. Um, his argument is that there is that correlation, and we need an urgent break from the past to build forward better. So you know this is essentially a blue new deal kind of argument that as you rebuild from COVID. Why not sort out this massive problem, which increases vulnerability to pandemics uh, and in, entails huge amounts of misery anyway, even when there isn't a pandemic around hygiene, sanitation and water. Most water and sanitation infrastructure is in critical need of rehabilitation, restoration and maintenance. The construction of water and sanitation systems offers immense opportunities to employ thousands of young women and men especially in urban areas where risks for political unrest can be rife when services continue to be abysmal. So there's him making the argument for a Blue New Deal to politicians and decision makers saying, and by the way, this will help reignite the economy and give jobs to people who might otherwise be burning, burning the place down. So good argument from Muyatwa Sitali there. Second was another piece. I'm becoming a bit worried that I'm becoming too obvious a fanboy of ABT Associates in Australia, um, where they have a really great governance team run by Graham Teskey with Lavinia Terrell and others who are just churning out, I think, some of the most interesting stuff on political economy analysis, thinking and working politically, adaptive management and all that kind of stuff, which I've been writing about for, and working on for some time now. And this latest one is a briefing paper, a briefing note, they call it. What do we learn from using political economy analysis in 13 national health and education programmes? So I like this because it's putting it into practice. I like it because most of the discussion around PEA is, all about, is in this fairly small group of governance programmes where you're trying to improve governance. Here they've actually applied it in the big money items, the health, education, the stuff that big aid money goes into. And they produced a 10-page briefing note on applying political economy thinking to sector programming. <clears throat> Starting point is a critique often levelled at these political economy analyses, PEAs, which is that actually no one reads them. They're a one-off exercise you do at the beginning to get your funding. You usually employ some you know, uh, overpaid consultants to write them. They cut and paste from previous PEAs. Um, and it's all a bit of a tick box exercise. Um, and they say, OK, but actually that's a terrible waste because their conclusion is the theory and practice of PEA can challenge existing orthodoxies in health and education program design and delivery. 
Some practitioners remain unconvinced of the value of such analysis in health or education programmes, particularly those with a heavy clinical or learning focus. So the medics and the teachers are saying, forget all that politics. We know how to teach. We know how to cure people, you know, stop people getting sick. Forget all that stuff. In those places, the, 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 um, the, the note argues, the focus is often on direct delivery to meet the immediate needs of those afflicted by certain diseases or struggling to achieve strong learning outcomes in the classroom. But such an approach does little to influence the systems and politics which shape the delivery of those services over decades, not just months or years. So basically, if you just concentrate on direct delivery, it's a quick fix at best. You're not dealing with the structural problems which are stopping health and education reaching the people in uh, en masse at a good quality. More effort is needed to find a common language and theoretical framework for clinical learning, health and education systems and PEA experts. So basically you've got to get the political economy wonks in the room with the medics and the, and the educationalists until they learn to understand each other and see that each other has got something to bring and then you get better results. Nice, really nice briefing note. Third piece of the week was undoubtedly the star, the star turn, which was, I'm um, sorry, with respect to everybody else, Kate Rayworth, who uh, laughably I used to pretend to manage at Oxfam many years ago, has become a global star following uh, uh, on her book, Donut Economics. This week, she launched something called the Donut Economics Action Lab deal, because what she's realized is she's got the idea Lots of people are starting to put it into practice. So what she's created is a kind of space where all the people who are trying to make donut economics work in practice can talk to each other and learn from each other. It's a really nice idea. So they had the online launch this week. Hundreds and thousands of people have signed up for it uh, in the first few days. At the heart of it is a community platform open to everyone who wants to turn donut economics from a radical idea into transformative action. We'll, this is her, her voice, this is Kate writing, we'll be co-creating tools and sharing stories of how to build regenerative and distributive economies, working with teachers and community makers, towns and cities, researchers, policymakers, businesses and change makers worldwide. And she comes up with six insights from essentially what's already nine years of donuttery, talking about the donut. First, go where the energy is. Don't waste time trying to convince skeptics. There's loads of people who want to get jump in, go there and you get more results. Embrace play. This is a very Kate thing. You know, don't make it boring. Don't make it sober. Have fun while you do it. Make practice part of your protest. It's your protest, your, you know, your critique of carbon intensive economy, of unsustainable practices is a whole lot more convincing if you can say, and look, we've tried something and it works. Unleash the power of peer to peer inspiration. People are often most inspired by seeing somebody in a similar situation to them doing something different and succeeding. So bring those peer-to-peer -peer groups together and let them chat to each other, let go, no control. Don't be the movement, join the movement. So there's lots of initiatives, lots of fantastic people working in this space of reinventing economics. Don't pretend to be in charge, just join in. And the final one, which was actually, I think the most interesting and sort of striking for me, create boundaries for integrity and creativity. So if you have a great idea like the donut, there's a danger it's gonna get greenwashed. Somebody's gonna say, yeah, we're doing the donut, um, and they're not. And then the whole uh, that thing becomes devalued. So the compromise that Kate and her team at Deal have come up with is 
Okay, it's Creative Commons. You can use all the donut thinking and the donut methodology, but you have to sign up to this set of principles. And if we don't, if we see that you're not abiding by them, we will call you out. So it's kind of soft enforcement, and it it reminds. And but within that, go for it, right? So they've they've created a space within which people can improvise and 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 be creative, and actually reminded me a bit of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Yuan Yuan Ang's great book um, about how China escaped the poverty trap talks about directed improvisation where the Chinese Com Communist Party sets these very general rules and then people improvise within them and lots of fantastic things come up. So I don't suppose Kate expected to be compared to uh, the Chinese Communist Party, but that was uh, something that struck me. She's promised to come back in six months and report back on the blog. Um, and I'm really looking forward to her doing that. Um, she also mentions in passing that this all started on the blog, which I'd kind of forgotten, I have to say. Back in 2011, she just had this very sort of rough and ready idea about combining a couple of things to make a donut. And so she just put it up on the blog, said, what do you think? And people said, oh my God, this is what we've been looking for. And she took it from there in the most amazing way. So hats off to Kate. Thanks for coming on the blog. Let's have you back. Fourth post of the week was about rules of thumb, um, which, are, which are something I've been talking to about a project I advise in. Well, it's called the Center for Good Governance in Myanmar. And I advise them on various things. And we'd had a conversation about rules of thumb, which are the default questions and instincts that govern an organization's daily decision making. So not those big, long strategy documents that we spend months writing and no one reads, but actually the someone's just suggested something do I take it seriously? Do I not? I have these implicit rules. You know, it, does it speak to me? Does it echo the, the organization's culture? And so what we did was actually get some of the smartest people in Myanmar, uh, local staff and expats, um, to spend a couple of hours talking through what are CGG's rules of thumb because they only partly written them down. And some examples, there's lots more on the blog, but do those people pushing the new idea, whether they're CGG or officials or others, have the power to check and balance the government. So will this actually produce impact on policy? Or could they acquire that power in the near future? Are other bigger players already doing it? Because if so, we don't want to just join in and be part of the herd. You know, let's, let's leave it to them. Will this open a door for significant reform? So even if the thing you're doing doesn't appear to be big or transformative or go to scale or anything, if it gets you in with decision makers that will then let you pitch bigger ideas to them, that might be worth doing. You know, you design a little monitoring and evaluation framework for a ministry and suddenly you win trust and then you can take it from there. You, you're building relationships. Two crucial ones. Is it the right time? Most of the things they discuss, the answer is no. You know, there are elections coming up. There's a COVID pandemic on. The, it's the wrong minister. They'll block it. The government decision makers are panicking about something else. There's always lots of reasons for saying, look, this is a great idea, but not now. We'll come back to it. And then so that is that picking of the right moment is absolutely crucial. And an ally to that, are things stuck or moving? It's much easier to get results if you work with the grain and some process is underway, some reform effort is underway, and then you can feed into that and strengthen it and push it in the right direction. That's much better than taking a department or an area of government or anything else which is doing which is not moving anywhere and, and try to heave them into motion. So a couple of things happened when I shared this draft with the team at CGG and they got a big discussion because some things were missing. Um, that there were areas in this conversation which were or, uh, which 
uh, or rather there are areas in their written strategy which had not appeared in the conversation. And one of them, which was painful, was Jesse, gender, equality and social inclusion. So no one had talked about that as a kind of rule of thumb. Now, why is that? Yeah, the optimistic answer is it's because it's so much part of the everyday, it's part of the woodwork, part of the DNA, that you don't even need to mention it. Well, I hope that's true. The other possibility is that actually there's a divergence between what an organisation says are its instincts and its rules of thumb and what it actually does. And I think that opens the door to a really interesting conversation. So that divergence struck me. But then the, fi the final one was my, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly wary about capturing these practices and these kind of implicit things because I think you might damage them by doing that. Um, so rules of thumb are implicit, right? They're, 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 they're instinctive and, and in that way they're a bit hidden and a bit protected. If we write them down, that means everybody's going to start arguing about them. Donors are going to start lobbying to say, no, no, we want you to have this rule of thumb. And suddenly instead of being instinct, it just becomes another page in a log frame or a theory of change. So you know, I've, I've actually had very deep misgivings about writing up things like adaptive management uh, practices because for this precise reason. Either donors start insisting on it or everybody starts paying lip service to it and it gets devalued. So maybe I should have done a Creative Commons thing like Kate did with the donor. But uh, uh, I'm, uh, there are some qualms I have about that. Last post of the week. James Putzel and I at LSE have been having great fun organising a, uh, a lecture series which kicks off next week called Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice. And COVID-19 has made it so much better and so much easier because instead of having to ask people to come to London um, you know, on a cold November night and give their talk and then go for a so-so meal, free meal, that's all they get, we don't pay anyone. Um, now people can do it from their from their study, from their bedroom, from their kitchen, and all over the world. So we've suddenly had this amazing talent pool to draw on, and I think we've come up with a great list of speakers. So we're kicking off on Friday the 9th of October with Jayati Ghosh, a renowned and polemical Indian economist, very critical of the current government. But the other highlights, we've got Branko Milanovic on his book, Capitalism Alone. He's the amazing inequality guru. We've got Claire Short, who set up DFID, talking about its uh, so-called merger with the Foreign Office. We've got Harjun Chang talking about industrial policy. Yuanwen Ang, who I mentioned earlier, talking about corruption uh, in China and in the West. And last one of the series, Kate Rayworth is coming back to say how it's going with the Donut Economics Action Lab. Lots more speakers, that's just a few. Have a look at the list and sign up because I think they're gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, and with that, have a good weekend. I hope it stops raining if you're in the UK. Talk soon.